In speaking to candidates, we find that many of them, definitely the majority, have a very weak understanding of what actually happens in a consulting project. So not only does that lead to making bad decisions about whether you actually want to be a management consultant, that lack of understanding also shows through when you meet um, interviewers or new networking with management consultants. Before you believe you want to be a management consultant, it's important to understand exactly what we do. So over the next couple of podcasts, I'm going to be talking about actual projects we've been involved in. Obviously, all sensitive information will be scrubbed out of the description, but enough to give you an understanding of the challenges you face without being able to identify the client. So the project I'm going to talk about today, it refers to an Indian industrial client in the country of India, obviously, who is looking to implement a new um, medical aid system as they have to deal with asbestos problems on their site. And the basis of the project, which I led, um, relates to the fact that the company had seen a spike, firstly, in the amount of sick leave and so on amongst their employees. And secondly, there was a huge amount of um, activist groups pushing for the company to do more to treat its employees who were impacted by asbestos. And thirdly, the company was looking to list on the either the um, London or the New York Stock Exchange, and they knew they had to have a good answer with regards to their liabilities around asbestos and their ability to treat employees. So the team that I led was brought in to understand the challenges that this company would face in managing its uh, medical aid. But secondly, firstly, what is the cost of of managing this this program. They had two different medical aid schemes they were looking to take on, then they wanted to understand which one would have the best impact uh, in terms of treating employees and secondly on their balance sheet and income statement. So the project we did was to understand the two different uh, medical aid options and to maybe come up with a third option. And obviously before we could do this we had to really understand the blight that asbestos was causing to the company. So we came in trying to understand the impact that asbestos had across the company. We started off by trying to collect data, you know, basically getting our hands around how big the problem was. You know, we wanted to understand what asbestos was actually costing this company in a year. I mean, just some of the challenges we faced was, firstly, and I don't speak any of the local languages. I don't speak Hindi, Gujarati, and whatever else is there. Um, most of the team was actually foreign. They came in from European countries. We did have a fair number of Indians on the team from... India, but the specialized skills we're deploying here on understanding of medical aid schemes was developed by the German practice, so we brought in a lot of German consultants. So culture clashes did occur. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to India, but it gets a little bit uh, hot when you go out during the day. So we started going out to collect data, right? And before we collected the data, we did make a request to the company to provide that data. And we were told, no problem, when you need it, let us know. So two weeks into the project, when we actually arrive on site, from planning and so on, we could not find much of the data that was needed. So we wanted things like, you know, patient records from hospitals, how much the company is spending on treatment, x-rays, lung checks, which is, you know, where asbestos mostly shows up, you know, whatever organograms and the structure of uh, how patients are treated, the number of patients being treated, treatment costs, lab costs, uh, prices for um, any drugs they were using. You know, we even wanted to know patient profiles. You know, what is the general profile? Have you segmented your patients? Um, If they use this particular drug, have you seen any impact? Where are you buying your drugs from? You know, how are you 
using uh, medical how are you using medical treatment centers for example a lot of it is outsourced and how do you manage the movement of data across the hospitals and across the clinics you own how do you track this information what are the targets you know are people staying on their uh, treatment regimen we couldn't find it uh, in some cases we went out and we looked for um, outsourcing contracts because in the company one thing they did very well is that they realized their core business was in the industrial product they manufactured and they outsourced a lot of other things but the, the fundamental thing we found is that they couldn't find those outsourced contracts so while they had these relationships going on with regards to testing so test you know testing companies would come in to do the tests that probably provide drugs and treatment and so on we didn't know if they were actually getting the service they had initially bought because they didn't know what that initial service was. I mean, each person had sort of institutional knowledge of what to expect, but we couldn't go back and audit these things. No duplicate copies were found. It was quite a it was quite a difficulty. And one of the things we did is we wanted to do sort of a day in the life of study. We wanted to look at exactly what a patient goes through at the clinic the company runs, but also at the main hospitals. I don't know if you've ever been to Indian clinics and Indian hospitals. I mean, they're state-owned it's difficult, it's busy, it's crowded, there's no air conditioning and so on. So we arrived there, we arrived on site and we decided to o observe the overall process. And one of those days when I don't have to wear my suit, I can put on some jeans and I can go on to site. You just definitely want to blend in, you know, because if you look as if you don't belong there, you change the behavior of the people around you. And if you change the behavior of the people around you, then you're not exactly observing them on a typical day. So what we found very interesting was that uh, each of these clinics, we visited a few of them, we couldn't visit all because, you know, they were like, I think there was something like 80 of them around all the manufacturing sites. But we visited the main ones and we visited a few in the rural areas and we visited a representative sample, a statistically significant representative sample. And we found that each clinic had its own database in inverted commas. A lot of it was manually captured. There was no electronic system or anything like that. A few did have um, uh, desktop computers. But it was a very manual system, and there's no way to run simulations, run queries, you know, to track patient patterns. We we had no way to go back to see how a patient had evolved over the last three years. If we wanted to do that, we had to get the file from a database. We had to then manually type it into the system, and we had to then crunch the numbers. That is a painful exercise, because let me tell you something. Some of these databases, the ones that did have laptops, didn't have USB ports. They still had floppy disks. So firstly, I had never seen a floppy disk in a few years. We had to get some in, which in India wasn't so hard because there were still some stores carrying them. I think they were carrying them as souvenirs. We had to find them, bring them in. We had to then put them into the system, and we had to extract the data, which took us a couple of days to do. Beyond that, I mean, we, we could have converted the laptop, I'm sure, but they would have taken too much time. We also find a lot of the patient data was not... Updated over the last two years, as there was a lot of churn amongst administration staff at the clinic and hospitals, files were not being updated. We found files that were in a room, boxed up, thrown away in a damp with uh, water, and we had to extract that information out of the, the manual files and build a spreadsheet out of it. So we couldn't actually get a lot of information from the clinics and hospitals, but we got the raw data, and we had to construct files from that. Now, we also found that when, when, when a worker moved from site to site, which is what the company encouraged, workers moved around, the file was deleted in one location and reopened in another location. So what we found is only pa patients who had been in a site for a long period, we had you know, very effective health records. For those who had been moved around, we only had their health record up until the time they had been at the new site. 
the old site they deleted the records and for those some of these uh, clinics and hospitals were very poor at deleting the records so we did find um, old files and we could piece the pieces we could piece the profiles together but the point is there were so much differences in reporting standards analyses and interpretation of results and in many cases we had to discard it we also found the reporting was you know given the fact the data was so poor i think some of these um clinic administrators and hospital administrators said what's the point of reporting it so we found the reporting into sort of the general manager at the site of manufacturing to be very weak and i think that the general manager really didn't see it as a problem that asbestos was a problem for him this was just the course of how you do business so he's not interested in the report the hospital and clinic administrator is not really proud of the report because the data is so weak so they don't want to give it and the and the general manager of the facility doesn't want it so what you have is a lack of good reports and basically no management decisions made by taking into consideration the health and well-being of of the employees and even at the corporate level we found zero reports on asbestos poisoning uh, at the corporate level there were a few discussions about it but the board had decided that this is not a governance issue they should worry about and the firm basically didn't know how much they were spending on asbestos treatment or, or what problems were taking place i mean basically no one knew how much they were spending forget about asbestos but what they were spending on other kinds of problems as well so you know the bottom line was tracking down the information was a really difficult task i mean you have no idea what it's like sitting in a damp basement in mumbai and trying to collect information it is horrible but it's what you got to do we we also looked at beyond the data the way that information flowed and the way it was used to make decisions and we benchmarked a few leading companies to do that like you know companies in asia and companies in the west i'm not going to name them um but what we found is that the client was nowhere near to this Firstly, you know, it's like a it's like a alcoholic. Before you fix your problem, you have to realize you have a problem, and I don't think they actually had reached that point. And there were a number of reasons for this, right? So, the the CEO of the company, who had built the company very quickly over a sort of an eighteen twenty year period, dynamic guy, well dressed. I mean, this guy, you know, pinstripe suits, carried around a cane. He lived the life, but. He was an entrepreneur. He was flamboyant. You know, he he was not your typical Indian businessman. And the dynamism he had brought into the company was the obviously the success for the company. So the company cut corners because they believed that the way that their competitors operated was very old school and it slowed them down. So they cut corners and in fact in many places, you know, they've cut corners in a ways that have reinvented the industry and have made it better for both clients and their own employees. But when it came to healthcare, it's very difficult to cut a corner because lives are at stake. And we found that the company had no handle on their costs, no handle on their on their um treatment uh, capabilities. I'll give you a very good example of this, right? They did run a a program to uh, firstly get employees in one particular site aware of what asbestos did to them. They then wanted those employees to be put onto a treatment uh, process whereby they would go into the clinic regularly to know what was happening. And they were so proud of this. In fact, if you go, to their, if you go through their internal documents, it was the one thing that they were proud of, that they ran this campaign. If you go to their head office and you watch their big flat screen TVs, you know, putting across internal news, this is one of the pieces that ran on that internal team. And they're so proud of the fact they spent something like, you know, I think it was $5 million or whatever to, to run this uh, uh, program. There was something like um, 8,000 employees at the site. And they were really so happy that 
they've done this. But if you do the numbers, 8,000 employees, only about 50% of them go through to, to attend these information sessions and to go to get themselves x-rays for, x-rayed, sorry, for the asbestos poisoning. Out of this 4,000 employees, only about 150 get into the program, you know, and of the 150, only about 70, I think, maybe less, I think it was 65 or something like that, actually stay on the program. So there you are spending $5 million to treat 65 employees, and no one had actually done this obvious calculation to say that, hey, hold on a second, guys, we're spending something like, I think, 50000 I think something like $75,000 per an employee just to get them on. In fact, of the 85 people that stayed on the program, we realized that before they ran this huge $5 million program to educate employees, in the month preceding that, I think 100 employees voluntarily went in for asbestos treatment. So the bottom line is that by themselves, more employees were joining than these special campaigns were costing a lot of money and getting very little results. And you know, there were some investigations that took place in terms of why this happened, and it is merely the design of the program and the companies they had used and so on. But I think the biggest thing that really struck us was that the company was spending a lot of money, but because each site was treated like a separate business, there was no way to aggregate this data. And what would happen is they would sign a, a group-wide contract with a company to do tests. So th this company would go to one site and say, hey, we were signed up to do these amount of tests. They'd go to another site and they would say, we were signed up to do less amount of work. And no one was watching these contractors. And what basically what the contractors were doing is they were getting away with murder, literally. They were doing less than they were meant to be doing, but no one could audit them because no one could locate those contracts. I mean, up to this day, um, I don't think those contracts have been located. And in many cases, they had to be renegotiated at a huge expense, not to the contractor, but to the client themselves. And there were no targets in terms of what they wanted to do with uh, treating of employees. There were no targets with regards to education, prevention. There was even no targets to remove asbestos from some of those facilities. Uh, and I know in one case that um, one of the general managers was actually encouraging workers to work overtime and in return he would help build their homes but using asbestos based filler in the concrete and beyond that you know beyond the the, the, the lack of governance we would find that um, you know we, we were extracting the patient treatment forms for one patient and there'd be three separate forms with three different kinds of data in one case we found seven forms for one patient with seven different sets of data and we and we didn't know which one was correct you know the other thing was that the employees we're not well educated. I mean, th to be fair, a lot of them didn't have any formal schooling. If they did, it was very basic education. So there was this mentality when we did engage the employees that, you know, the company would take care of them. They expected the company to take care of them. The CEO was well regarded um, in the industry and they didn't know better. They expected these well-educated people who knew how to make money would take care of them. It was one of the other challenges we faced. It's a symptom. It's basically a symptom. If an employee doesn't know better the odds are very rare that the company is going to place their best interest first. So we we went through all those issues. As you can imagine, they're quite complex. And we continued the analysis. And, you know, our big issue was to try to determine what is the root cause and what was the symptom. So one of the things we realized was that you know, employees spend a lot of time waiting in queues. I mean, if you've seen in uh, the public s hospitals and public clinics in India, they're, they're busy. So one of the big business cases that this company was pursuing was reducing the time people spent in these queues, you know, the time they spent waiting in uh, clinics. 
and it was a big push from the CEO. He really liked it, and he, and he told us, you know, how, how can you think this doesn't make add value? It, we should be doing it. And I said, okay, it's not what we're saying. It doesn't add value. We need to understand it more. So one of our uh, analysts, we sent him along to spend some time at the queue to see exactly what happens there. And we realized, yes, it does pay time. It does, you know, help to spend less time in the queue, but only up to a certain point. Why? Because the clinics are not close to the facilities, other manufacturing facilities and to get to the clinic you got to get onto a bus and then you got to get to the clinic and the bus will pick you up in the evening so what we realize is that yes spending less time in a queue adds value but it only adds value if you can go back to your work immediately it doesn't add any value to spend less time in a queue if no matter how much time you spend in a queue you're gonna have to wait there for the bus in the evening so what we realized is that yes, reducing time in the queue only helps if you had a shuttle service taking people back and forth. But a shuttle service wouldn't help because that'll be really unproductive because you couldn't coordinate work time. So why don't we decided to do this? Why don't we coordinate when people could go to the clinic unless it was an emergency? So that a set group of people would go at six o'clock in the morning, that same group would be back at nine o'clock. That way they didn't have to wait around, mill around and miss all their shifts and so on. So again, it's very important to distinguish between symptoms and root cause. Yeah, it looked like reducing queue time would make sense, but we realized it only made sense if we can get them back to their shifts to start on time. Beyond that, you know, we were now starting to aggregate the cost of um, treating asbestos. And you know, it was it was difficult to do because... Healthcare is not an exact science. I know doctors are going to, you know, sound, are going to be surprised at my statement, but healthcare is not an exact science. I mean, if we're spending like fifty thousand dollars on a certain type of test per patient, okay, that's an exaggeration. Let's say thousand dollars per test on a certain type of patient. We can't know if that test is beneficial because we have to look at what impact that test has, not just on directly as a result of doing that test, but what impact that test has on the rest of the test. For example, maybe doing this test doesn't have an immediate benefit, but doing this test allows us to cut out doing five other tests. So the impact overall is beneficial, but the direct benefit from that test was negligible. And one thing we found is that this is the way the company measured its cost base. They wouldn't look at a patient's profile over his lifetime, they'd look at the patient's profile in a fiscal year and they wouldn't draw a conclusion between saying, well, the patient went for this treatment this year and because of this treatment, he was much healthier two years down the line. And we had to aggregate this whole new way to cost the impact of um, asbestos. You know, beyond that, we had to work on absenteeism. We had to, it was very difficult to do these things. Make no doubt, this is not about sitting in a, in a room and collecting data from uh, companies that sold data. We actually had to go out, spend time with employees, follow them around and see how much time they actually wasted. Wasting in inverted commas, I they're wasting, I think they couldn't actually arrive at work. And then we had to figure out, you know, what was this total cost? I mean, a lot of it is opportunity cost. A lot of it is cash going out. We had to distinguish between both of those things. What is actual cash you are losing? What is an opportunity cost? Because every time we decide to spend more money on treatment or to change the treatment, you're basically doing an opportunity cost calculation. We also realized that you know, what is the benefit of having these clinics so far away that employees couldn't get to them? What if we brought the clinics on site? Maybe we could then use the queuing uh, a business case to make things uh, work better. And we continued with this analysis, which was not at all easy. I mean, it was it was really, really difficult for us to do these things. And also, beyond doing that, we also had to find a way to communicate the, the findings that we were, were developing. And we kind of isolated our findings into a few key areas. The first one is that there was basically no... There was, there was, asbestos poisoning was not an issue for the company. That's why there was a 
basic lack of interest at every part of the organization. I mean, the general managers managing the facilities didn't care about it because they were not measured and taking care of their employees. When we looked at the performance reviews. It was all about pushing out that three, an extra 5% this quarter, an extra 5% next quarter, an extra 5% the next quarter. That's how the company ran themselves. Quarterly performance increases. If you didn't improve your performance, you were out of there. So general managers didn't care. They just pushed their employees to get that 5% increase. So the first thing is that obviously the governance structure and the planning process had to change. But before the governance structure and planning process had to change, asbestos treatment had to become a priority for this company. And the only way it could become a priority is when we showed them the actual numbers, the actual cost of, of treating this disease and not treating this disease, that it became a priority. Beyond that, we realized that it was such a fragmented system for running this company. There were 13 different groups involved as stakeholders in managing asbestos. I mean, if you look at all medical treatment, there were something like 27 dis different um, stakeholder groups. We had to first had to create a stakeholder system whereby no information fell through the cracks and most importantly an IT system underlay that whereby no patient data fell through the cracks. I mean we weren't involved in the IT system but we did work out the costing and so on. Beyond that we also had to really manage procurement very carefully and contracts. We had to put in place a whole new procurement management system, a whole new contractor management system, a whole new system to, to manage um, asbestos, a whole new system to manage the HIV costing. I mean the systems issues were, were just which is phenomenal. You know, we needed to be able to track one patient over time, and we couldn't do that. It was just the most basic indicators of of failing health, such as you know, increased absenteeism, coughing, uh, and just the basic indicators could not be tracked. And we had to introduce those things. We also took it a little bit further, and we said that um, you know, one of the things we found is that a patient would go in for a test, and he was at a position whereby we knew that he had to be treated very carefully, but the hospital was not cataloging that data. So one year later when they should be following up on this patient to see how they were doing, they were not following up on them. Which could have led to fatalities. We could never prove that because we couldn't find the records. But if other uh, if, if, if the progression of other patients was anything to go by, we knew it was leading to, to fatalities, right? Beyond missing data and data issues, I mean the data collection was one thing. Training of nurses, training of doctors was the other thing. Putting it into an IT system which could manage it was another issue. Putting in place the right IT system became very important. And this was before the days of iPad, obviously, and so on. So getting the right kind of mainframe system and so on was very important. The company ended up spending a lot of money on just to lay the foundation. We also realized that people managing um, not just asbestos, but just general employee well-being at the company was not equipped to do this. They were not educated. They, sorry, let me rephrase it. They were not business educated. They were medical educated. They were not sitting on any management committees. They were not reporting to the CEO or at least the chief operating officer on what was happening. They were not giving the CFO updates on what was needed. There was no budget. There was no key employee information. You know, if you don't have a budget, you're basically making up what you need. There was no proactivity. This company had spent their whole life responding to crises and they were quite comfortable doing that. In fact, the people they had running the employee wellness programs and the employee sort of I'm thinking of a word here, but basically the HR department, uh, where which is where the medical team sat, they were not groomed to put their clients' interests first. They they treated employees as if they were transactions and basically people that you could bring in, milk, and you can get out. And it was a whole culture change because to treat asbestos patients, you had to first realize they were worthy and they had value to create over the long term. And this was a huge culture change for that client. You know, s beyond that, 
we came up with a set of recommendations. The first one is that, you know, you firstly have to change the, in, the entire way this company looks at asbestos. It has to be formulated and driven at the CEO level that asbestos is a problem. The cost is hurting the company. You know, the company thought this was just a medical aid problem, introduced a new medical aid company, and it, the problem disappears. That's not the case. Even with the new medical aid company, one of the things we found out is that no medical aid company is going to take on this problem, at least not at the cost that the company is willing to bear. So they had the company had to bring in treatment in-house and deal with it. Beyond that, new measures, new targets, a new centralized governance system, a new centralized IT system, new people to manage it, and experienced staff. We also realized these clinics and having buses or, or little you know, carts take people across to clinics was never going to work. So the clinics uh, were, sh were not shut down, but they ended their contract with the government clinics, brought them in-house. You know, all systems had to be integrated, uh, capacity constraints had to be removed. And finally, targets had to be put in place. The company went ahead and rolled this out to their five largest facilities. They decided that the, co the risk return, sorry, not risk return, the cost-benefit analysis of rolling it out to the smaller locations were not worthwhile. They sold that to another company. We don't know what happened to those other locations. My feeling is that the recommendations were never implemented. The benefit case for this project was quite, I think, solid and the company did achieve the benefits case they wanted but you know beyond that there was a lot of resistance that they faced you know looks like a short risk but this the culture of the company is being flamboyant entrepreneurial means that many people did not feel that they should be worrying about health they felt that employees are re replaceable if some guy collapsed at the facility fine someone else would be willing to take their place so you know the company which had managed itself as a federation of businesses had to stop doing that it the medical problems led to this company changing its organizational structure. It had to take more direct control of some of the facilities where the general managers were not willing to change the way they were managing employees. So they had to rein in local functional staff, set business practices, build proper um, uh, governance models. And you know the, the common refrain this, this company heard from each of the general managers is, why are you telling me to manage my business the same way? We are unique. The situations we face in this state are unique from the situations we face in this state. And you know, it, it was, it's human nature for employees to want to do these things. But at least management made the decision that this could not continue. At some point, asbestos was going to become a, a, not just a liability on a... On a a cost basis but a liability legally as soon as the country changes laws so they worked very very carefully to to rein in sort of these renegade um, um, general managers to some extent you know the general managers were right their minds are unique but there are many similarities between these facilities and the key thing is that even though they are unique weight counts on governance distribution of data, collection of data, you had to have standardized processes. And, you know, local differences, languages, and so on, made a small impact in terms of the way you manage a functional organization. The bottom line is that several best practices which should have been adhered to company-wide were, were not being done. And I think what was quite interesting is that all those people who you raised huge amounts of resistance and I remember traveling around with the management team um, to meet the general managers and so on and present some of the findings 
lots of resistance when we said what we were going to do, but when we actually presented our final recommendations, it was unanimously accepted. Because we spent a lot of time on trying to make the problem simple. And one of the things that inspired us was the um, nutrition labels you find on products in Canada, the United States, and I think Europe as well. If you ever bought a, a chocolate bun, you turn it around and you see the, the nu nutrition label, it has a very simple layout of what um, percentage of fat, percentage of salt, and so on. One of the things we said is that one of the reasons people don't understand in the cost of asbestos and why it's damaging the company and affecting morale and so on is because there's no easy way to report this. So we created a very rep easy reporting system, not, not nearly as complex as what they were currently using, what they wanted to use, and we got the mine, ma the, so not mine managers, the, the facilities managers, and it was actually a quarry, the quarry managers to, to understand the impact. If you give them a simple tool to understand where they can understand data, it's a lot easier for them. So one of the things we focused on is that crunching medical and especially medical aid data, I don't know if you've ever worked on a medical aid product, but working at mortalities and so on is really, really complicated. The problem is it's presented in a very complicated way. So we, we shelved that and we said we're going to find a way to present this data in a way that makes perfect sense. And that's what we went for. The project ended well, I think. I mean, the client implemented many of the recommendations. I think there was just a few recommendations they chose not to implement, but very tiny things, like when they would launch their IT system. They still, they went ahead with it anyway. They went, they launched a more, I think, um, simpler version of it. But the bottom line is they did it. One of the few companies that treated this problem so early and became sort of a benchmark in their country for the way they treated it. It's a pity they, they sold the rest of their business, but remember something cost-benefit analysis shows that they either shut down this business or sell it. They sold it. They're no longer liable, although you know a judge would have to determine if they were liable for the practices that took place before they sold it. But I thought that this podcast can give you a really good understanding of what actually happens in a project because I think people have a very bad view. You know, they always hear the thing you have to be, you know, you have to have a good number crunching skills. You have to be disciplined, diligent. But you don't really know what that means until you hear what a project is like. And I went into quite a lot of detail here to explain this particular project. In future podcasts, I'll talk about other projects. Projects I've done in Germany, some of the other partners and firms consulting I've done in the UK. We've done quite a lot of work in South America, actually. Brazil has been a big market for us in terms of work we've done. And we want to talk about those things and create an image in your mind's eye in terms of what a consulting project is like. Traditionally, you know, medical aid projects are difficult. It's just the amount of data you have to crunch and uh, the way you have to analyze the numbers makes it very difficult to do. But they are enjoyable to be able to you know, make an impact in the way people live their lives and how long they live their lives. I would say that's one of the most difficult projects I've ever led. Um, definitely kept me up a lot. Um, the cultural issues were significant. The language barriers were significant. I, I think the cultural issues and language issues and just the, the weather was, was horrendous. And just having to deal with all these things and then having to sit down in a warehouse and collect data. And even though I was leading the project, I still went down with the teams to make sure that what we were getting made sense because I didn't want morale to drop. The project turned out to be far more complex than we ever assumed it would be. We knew there would be problems, but we didn't expect that documents would be sitting in a flooded basement that hadn't been cleaned in about two years. And while we were quite happy to let the client go out and fish out those documents and transcribe it for us, people just didn't care, you know. They'd say they'd do it, and then they would come back and they'd say, well, I couldn't do it, or I didn't have time to do it. And eventually we decided we just had to do it ourselves, you know, bring in a few more consultants and analysts and help us transcribe these documents. In some cases, we just decided to scan it and send it off to our data center 
and get them to you know, use OCR, optical character recognition, to, to lift it out. But even so, a lot of the documents, at least 40%, couldn't be treated that way. And we had to manually transcribe it. I mean, that's, that explains why you, know, you need to know how to do statistical sampling that is valid. You need to know how to do tests of confidence because the data is not perfect and you have to make sure the data is perfect. You know, and here you're dealing with something where there's no precedent. There's no precedent for what we want to do around this particular problem. And there's no such thing as saying, hey, we're recommending you do this because, you know, this company in the United States does the same thing. There's no precedent. You had to convince the CEO to do it on the merits of your recommendation alone. There's no such thing as saying other people are doing it, therefore you have to do it as well. I mean, those are kind of, kind of the, diff the challenges we faced on this project, but we enjoyed it immensely. Um, I've remained in touch with the client, and I'm still in touch with the client. I mean, I think that you know, the way he's run his business since then, he's used the learnings from this particular project to treat employees much better. And we've remained in touch. We, we speak very often. But the point is that projects are nothing like what you expect it would be. That was a pretty tough project. The team I had, just so you understand the structure of the project, I had a team of eight people reporting to me on that. That's actually a very big team, by the way. So that's a huge team on a case project reporting to you. And the only reason we went up to eight is because when we realized how much problems we had with the data analysis, we had to bring in a few more people to work on it. Otherwise, I would have had something like four or five people, five people actually reporting to me on this project. But we brought in another three people, and we went through the number crunching. A pretty tough project for the team, I think, especially for the German consultants, because the Germans have a certain way of working, and India doesn't have that way of working. So definitely it was a culture clash, but a very, very capable team. Um, I think the team worked well together, even though they had never worked together before. I think that they made a big impact, and I think that the one good thing about this project was that the work we had done became readily exportable across the business. And, you know, they, they, um, they picked up and worked with us. Now, just... I'm going to put this out at the end. I spoke about India, I spoke about asbestos, and I spoke about an industrial facility. The project didn't take place in India. It wasn't about asbestos, and it was not in a manufacturing or industrial acquiring facility. Uh, I did that to hide some of the key information. It did take place in an emerging market. It was about medical aid, and it was in the chemical industry. Um, but that's as much as I will say here. But otherwise, none of the information that I've given you is wrong. I just left out some of the uh, identifying features. Now, as you know, the chemical industry is even more notorious than the um, than the quarrying industry. So it was a it was a difficult, difficult project for many, many reasons. Just to go in there and see how these people um, are struggling, and then when you start the project, and you realize, hold on, this is a bigger it's a bigger bullet than we thought we were going to get, and then you have to sort of ramp up very quickly. It's difficult, you know, you can't really walk away and say, hey, you know, this is worse than we thought we're going to walk away. It doesn't work that way. I mean, the client obviously understands that we wouldn't just ask to increase the size of the project unless we really thought it was useful to do. At the end of the day, we did a very good piece of work. I think the client liked it. Um, I think that, the, you know, we set up quite a good gold standard for how the chemical industry manages itself when we did this project. Um, but most importantly, you know, the lessons we took from this were readily exportable to other chemical companies. I mean, we went to other chemical companies where in a less in a disastrous situation said, look, you know what? We have been involved with another client who had a similar problem. The client allowed us to name them. And this is what we did for them. You know, we can fix your problems. And just the amount of useful information we gleaned from this client was just unbelievable because we obviously sanitized it in every possible way. But we could really, it gave us a whole new perspective on how to treat uh, some of these uh, medical aid problems at a chemical company. And we, we use that to expand into other chemical companies, into other allied businesses, you know, close to chemicals like oil and gas processing and so on. 
and we basically built a pretty niche medical aid business here that we could take to other businesses. And that's one of the things you're doing as a management consultant. You're not just solving a problem. You're deciding what's happening in the industry and how what you're doing here can solve other problems worldwide. It is a great industry to be in, but you've got to be really someone who lives for that, you know. Someone who gets up in the morning and gets excited about solving those things. But also, you know, it's not just solving it when it's given to you on a platter. Nothing is given to you on a platter. I will never forget this project because I've never, ever been in a basement in some rat-infested city which doesn't have proper air conditioning and having to wade through in my jeans and so on. I've never dared to do that before. But I did it now, and I can talk about it. The point is, nothing is what you expect in management consulting. You know, you've got to really decide you know, how far to go. Now, just to be fair... Consulting firms don't expect the employees to do this. I made a call on that day and said, look, let's go into the basement and get the data. And the team agreed with me. In a typical situation, we would not have done that and we probably wouldn't do it again. But on that particular day, we made the call and we said we'll do it because we were running out of time and we needed to get the data quickly. And to be honest, we didn't trust the data that was coming for the client. But in a real situation, you are taken care of very well. You know, you wouldn't be put in a situation that's harmful. The, the consulting firm would take very good care of you. And we were not in a harmful situation. It was just very uncomfortable, you know, to go underground. And, you know, the, the, the stench was horrendous. It's like the, like the wood had become a person and then that person died and then it decomposed, became a person again and decomposed. But the lifestyle is glamorous once you, you know, wash yourself off a little bit. But the impact you have is tremendous. Always, it is what you. It is the reason why you continue doing what you're doing. When you visit these clinics and you see people with, you know, burns and so on, and no one's there to take care of them unless you do this correctly. You have to come up with a solution that is that is right and that can be implemented. I've seen many consultants come up with a solution which is ridiculous, and then they'll blame the client for not implementing it. But they've spent so much time with the cons with the client don't they know what the client can and cannot implement if you present a solution that the client cannot implement then it's the consultant's fault for not considering it and they're not consultants you have to consider the client's implementation shortfalls you cannot recommend a solution that costs 250 million dollars a year to implement the client only has a hundred thousand dollars in the bank it's just wrong and it's the consultant's fault hopefully you enjoyed that podcast please feel free to comment and i'll be happy to respond to your comments thank you